This is episode 252 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support our show, contribute directly to programming, and get access to over 100 additional Shakespeare history episodes from our back catalog when you join us as a patron on Patreon. Sign up today at patreon.com slash That Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Daniel Blank, assistant professor at Durham University and author of Shakespeare and University Drama in Early Modern England. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. He wrote looks as pale as the visit of the ghost which cried so miserably at the theatre like an oyster wife. Hamlet, revenge. So from this, we can work out that this lost Hamlet play featured a ghost, an important innovation that seems to have had a major impact on Shakespeare's play. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In his latest book, Shakespeare's Tudor, Darren Freebury Jones explores the unsung history of Thomas Kidd as a master playwright who belongs in the canon of Shakespeare, Marlowe, and Lyly as one of the greatest playwrights of the Elizabethan era. Darren writes that along with Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd specifically paved the way for Shakespeare to be a successful playwright. While it makes sense for a newcomer on the scene, as Shakespeare was in the 1580s, to reach out for adaptations of the work of more established playwrights in order to launch his career, Darren points out that William Shakespeare continued to use and be influenced by the work of Thomas Kidd not only after Kidd's death in 1594, but even after Shakespeare was independently established as a successful playwright in London. To share with us the often overlooked history of Thomas Kidd and his influence on Shakespeare is our returning guest and respected friend, Darren Freeberry Jones. Dr. Darren Freeberry Jones is lecturer in Shakespeare Studies at the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust. He is general editor of the Collected Plays of Robert Greene for Edinburgh University Press, and his most recent book, Shakespeare's Tutor, explores the influence of Thomas Kidd on the works of Shakespeare. His findings on the works of Shakespeare and his contemporaries have been discussed in national newspapers such as The Times, The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Observer, and The Independent. You can find out more about Darren and see links to his works in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Darren. It's so glad to have you here on That Shakespeare Life. I'm glad you could come back and visit with us again. We meet again, Cassidy. It's uh, an absolute privilege to be back. Thank you. Tell us about Thomas Kidd and his writing the story of Hamlet. Did he actually write Hamlet before Shakespeare? I think it's highly likely that Kidd was responsible for an older Hamlet play, probably written in the late 1580s. So, Let's sift through the available evidence. Firstly, Thomas Nash seems to have attacked Kidd in his preface to Robert Greene's pamphlet, Menaphon, published in 1589. 
And Nash's attack has helped scholars to identify Kidd as the author of the so-called Ur Hamlet. So Nash alludes to the kid in Aesop who has left the trade of novrint, meaning a, a scrivener, a professional scribe, and now meddles with Italian translations, as Kidd had done with Torquato Tasso's Padre de Familia in a work called The Householder's Philosophy. Now, Lucas Earn points out that Italian translations were a rare phenomenon in the years up to 1589, and Nash could expect that his literary readership would easily identify an allusion to Kidd's The Householder's Philosophy. Moreover, Kidd's father, Francis Kidd, was warden of the Company of Scriveners from 1580 onwards, and it seems likely that Kidd was at some point engaged in his father's trade. Nash claims that Kidd bleeds Seneca line by line in order to afford you whole hamlets, and Kidd can be credited with refining the Roman tragic writer Lucius Aeneas Seneca for the commercial stage. Nash has a couple of jabs at Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy, particularly when Kidd thrusts Elysium into hell during Andrea's account of his descent into the lower world. Although Nash refers to a sort of shifting companions, the biographer Arthur Freeman pointed out that he often adopted the plural form even when a specific sneer was aimed at an individual, and that there's some question of the number of dramatists available to Nash for subjects, eliminating the writers Nash speaks favourably of in the same preface, there's no one else we know of who could fit the description Nash gives. Now, the earliest recorded performance of The Lost Hamlet took place at Newington Butts Theatre in June 1594. And two years after the record of its performance, Kidd's school fellow, Thomas Lodge, alluded to the old Hamlet. He wrote, looks as pale as the visit of the ghost which cried so miserably at the theatre like an oyster wife, Hamlet, revenge. So from this, we can work out that unlike other versions of the Hamlet story found in Saxo Grammaticus, Belforest, and so forth, this lost Hamlet play featured a ghost, an important innovation that seems to have had a major impact on Shakespeare's play. And as I show in my book, there's a history of plays long attributed to Kidd being reassigned to Shakespeare on dubious grounds. And this even extends to the case of this lost Hamlet play. For instance, Gary Taylor, attempting to assign the play to early Shakespeare, infers that the ghost in the lost Hamlet engaged directly with the play's living characters, as Seneca's ghosts do not as Kid's ghost does not, which suggests to me that Taylor isn't familiar with the ghost of Pompey in Kid's tragedy Cornelia, who visits and speaks to the terrified heroine. Shakespeare, of course, adapted earlier plays in many cases, such as the old King Lear play, which I attribute to Kid, the famous victories of Henry V, the troublesome reign of King John, and so on. And it's more than likely that Nash's target is indeed Kid, and that Shakespeare's Hamlet is modelled in part on Kidd's play. 
Darren writes that in Shakespeare's eulogy, Ben Jonson lists a, quote, sporting kid as a peer of Shakespeare's. Darren, what was Shakespeare's relationship with Kid in real life? Did they ever write plays together or was Shakespeare just ripping off Kid as we think he might have done with Hamlet? <laughs> I think it's a combination of both, actually, Cassidy. So in my book, I give reasons for believing that Shakespeare learned from kids through acting in some of kids' plays, that he later revised kids' work, and that the dramatists even collaborated directly. The one play I argue Shakespeare and Kidd actually wrote together is The Reign of King Edward III, a chronicle history which was printed in 1596 with no authorial attribution. That play is now universally acknowledged as an early Shakespeare collaboration. So Shakespeare wrote the Countess episode in which King Edward develops an adulterous fascination with the Countess of Salisbury, when, quite frankly, he should be going into battle, which recalls King Edward's wooing of Lady Jane Grey in Henry VI, Part Three, He also contributed a scene in which Prince Edward is taunted by French heralds, which anticipates the taunting of the English king by the French Dauphin in Henry V. Shakespeare, therefore, appears to have been commissioned to write scenes for which he was considered the ideal contributor. Now, Kidd has been proposed as Shakespeare's co-author since the late 19th century, when scholars drew attention to the striking similarities between the Mariner's account of the naval battle of Sloys in Edward III and the general's account of the battle with the Portuguese in the Spanish tragedy, which was modeled partly on the messenger's account of the battle of Thapsus in Robert Garnier's Cornelia, which Kidd translated. Just as Shakespeare seems to have been considered the ideal author for certain episodes. Kidd was certainly the ideal choice to compose such retrospectively related action. The evidence for Kidd's authorship of the non-Shakespearean portions of the play is powerful, and I provided the most sustained case for his primary authorship of the play yet undertaken. I also devote a chapter making the case that Shakespeare revised a collaboration between Kidd and Thomas Nash, known as Harry VI, in the play titled Henry VI Part One" in the first folio. So alongside statistical analysis, I employ more traditional literary critical approaches in arguing that Kidd was Nash's co-author and that the character of Joan of Arc is typical of Kidd's other strong-willed female characters who use intrigue, disguise, and deception. I I think, actually, the kid contributed greatly to the process of carving out more space for women in tragic narratives, laying foundations for Shakespeare's female roles. Finally, in 1602, an edition of the Spanish tragedy was printed, newly corrected, amended, and enlarged with new additions. Now, all major attribution scholars agree that Shakespeare contributed to these editions. The evidence therefore suggests that Shakespeare collaborated posthumously with Kidd, probably in the late 1590s, which might have influenced the composition of Hamlet at the turn of the century. It's it's, it's long been recognized that the Spanish tragedy served as a model for Shakespeare's Hamlet. And in my book, I suggest that Shakespeare's memory of the play was refreshed 
through his revisions. Kidd's influence on Shakespeare's most famous tragedy might go far deeper than, than that, if we accept that he was the author of the old Hamlet, of course. Darren writes that several of Kidd's works were published anonymously in the 16th and 17th century, while also pointing out that this kind of anonymity was not unusual. Darren, why were Kidd's works not published under his name until centuries after his death? And what makes this practice of anonymous publishing normal for his lifetime? Yeah, so so even Kidd's most famous play, The Spanish Tragedy, was printed anonymously in every 16th and 17th century edition. And like I say, this isn't unusual. To offer just one example, the Tamburlaine plays weren't published under Marlowe's name until 1820. So Elizabethan playing companies appear to have been more concerned with advertising themselves than advertising their authors. In his brilliant monograph, Shakespeare and the Book Trade, Lucas Earn notes that out of 20 plays printed prior to 1593, 17 don't mention the author's name. And over the next five years, just 40% of play title pages provide an authorial ascription. Even Shakespeare's name doesn't appear on a play title page until 1598, four years after Kidd died. Jacobean and Caroline publishers, however, seem to have recognised the selling power of an author's name. Around 70% of Jacobean playbooks proclaim their authors. Now, the saleability of an author's name sometimes led to underhand dealings. So, for instance, some scholars have argued that the publication of the 1605 edition of the old King Lear play that I give to Kidd was a deliberate attempt to take advantage of Shakespeare's King Lear, likely written that year. The old play is referred to as the tragical history of King Lear. But the play has a very happy ending, and Shakespeare was the first to transform the Lear myth into a tragedy. So there could be an attempt to dupe readers into believing they were purchasing Shakespeare's play rather than this much older work. The 1664 Shakespeare Third Folio, of course, includes seven additional plays, only one of which, Pericles, is partly by Shakespeare. So that attempt to appeal to readers by including additional plays, well, well, that continues today, I think, as can be seen in some of the questionable works added to modern complete works editions. So in summary, I, I, I think you see a real shift from the anonymity of Elizabethan plays to the commercial emphasis on author names from the Jacobean period onwards. Long attributed to Kidd, Arden of Faversham was published illegally in 1592 by Abel Jeffies. Darren, what made this publication illegal? And did Thomas Kidd respond to this illegal publication? So during Shakespeare's time, no, no book could be printed in England except by the Stationers Company, and then only after being licensed by the authorities. And this constituted a sort of copyright, which had to be in the name of some member of the company, a, a printer or, or bookseller, and not the author. And this form of copyrights was a means of maintaining a strict censorship of the press and had little to do with protecting author rights. So Arden Faversham was entered in the stationer's register 
in April 1592 and was published that, uh, that year by Edward White, who also published Kids, the Spanish Tragedy and Solomon and Poseidon and owned the rights to King Lear. Abel Jeffs published an illegal edition of Arden of Faversham that same year. White was also fined for publishing an edition of the Spanish tragedy, which belonged to Jeffs. So, so what made these dealings illegal is that Edward White, and not Jeffs, actually owned the rights for Arden of Faversham, and that Jeffs, not White, had the rights to the Spanish tragedy. Documentary evidence suggests that the stationer's company seized Jeffs counterfeit copies of Arden of Faversham recorded as Arden of Kent, and ordered him to pay a fine of 10 shillings. Edward White was similarly accused of illegally printing an edition of the Spanish tragedy licensed to Jeffs. White's copies were also seized, and he too was fined 10 shillings. Now, we don't have any evidence the kid responded to the illegal publication, but Lucas Earn notes that the quick succession of the Spanish tragedy Solomon and Poseidon and Ardna Faversham is intriguing and speculates that the reason why these plays were published by the same stationer around the same time may be that kids sold white the manuscripts. So the author did have the right to sell their manuscripts. It wasn't just a strict lack of authorship input on what got published. It's very complicated because usually it would be the playing company who, who owned the rights to a play. So this seems to be a, a particularly complex case here. Darren's book outlines a great deal of textual evidence for establishing kids' authorship of works like Arden of Faversham, including looking at style, rhetoric, and meter to establish patterns that can be attributed specifically to kid. For the uninitiated here, Darren, please explain briefly how this process works and what makes this kind of textual analysis reliable in light of things that we know about authors, like they can certainly write things that go against their personal nature. So how are you able to look at a text and determine which person it belongs to? Firstly, I I should stress that it's really important we still employ more traditional approaches, analysis of a writer's use of sources, characterization, overall dramaturgy, and so forth. And these approaches can be supplemented by digital techniques, which give us insights into authorial stylistic traits that they simply wouldn't have been conscious of themselves. Now, what what makes the kind of textual analysis I employ reliable when it comes to attributing kids' plays is that the methods are not only based on the fundamental principles of authorial dramatic style, but that they have been shown to be reliable and, and indeed successful for distinguishing authors by generations of scholars. So a particularly useful contribution to verse studies, for example, was made by a scholar named Philip Timberlake, who examines the rates for feminine endings in Elizabethan dramas. The most famous example of a feminine ending in literature being to be or not to be, that is the question in which Shakespeare adds an 11th unstressed syllable to the line. Timberlake discovered that from the very beginning of his career, Shakespeare employed feminine endings with more frequency than his Elizabethan contemporaries, including Robert Greene, George Peel, and Marlowe. Importantly, however, Timberlake discovered that Kidd was customarily using feminine endings 
with a frequency surpassing that of any pre-Shakespearean dramatist, meaning that the high percentages for plays that have been attributed to Kidd, such as Solomon and Poseidon, King Lear, Arden of Bavisham, and Cornelia, give us fascinating insights into that playwright's stylistic individuality. Now, earlier scholars were able to identify Kidd's hands through the traditional discipline of you know, actually reading his plays closely. And they would often highlight instances of authorial self-repetition. Such approaches paying close attention to the verbal fabric of plays and combining qualitative with quantitative research methods remain essential. Now, in my book, I employ databases of around 500 plays developed by Martin Muller, as well as Pervez Rizvi, in order to provide the most comprehensive analysis of kids' word associations in comparison to his Elizabethan contemporaries yet undertaken. And all of my findings take into account the sound chronology of plays developed by Martin Wiggins. Common authorship or, or deliberate imitation become the likeliest explanations when a play shares a large number of word combinations peculiar to a dramatist. When such parallels of wording also <laughs> reveal complex modes of expression, it's reasonable to conclude that the results point towards a single author's habits as a phrase maker. I also examined kids' quirky use of rhyme, uh, particularly dispersed or interrupted rhyme. So in his rhymes, Kidd frequently employs the pronouns thee and me in conjunction with polysyllabic words ending in C-Y, N-Y, T-Y and R-Y. And we can see this in a passage from scene eight of Arden of Faversham, the famous quarrel scene, often attributed erroneously, in my view, to Shakespeare, whose beauty and demeanour far exceeded thee, this certain good I lost for changing bad and wrapped my credit in thy company. I was bewitched, that is no theme of thine, and thou unhallowed hast enchanted me. Now, the strikingly similar lovers' quarrel in Solomon and Poseidon is also characterized by this distinctive mixture of blank verse and complex rhyme. Couldst thou abuse my true simplicity, whose greatest fault was over-loving thee, I'll keep no tokens of thy perjury. Arden Faversham has, has remarkably close affinities with Solomon and Poseidon in terms of particular rhyming forms, which distinguish Kidd from contemporary dramatists such as Robert Greene, Thomas Lodge, and early Shakespeare. Uh, for instance, while Shakespeare's The Taming of the Shrew shares the ACA scheme with C representing an unrhymed element, as in free you she in Shakespeare's comedy, it does so at a much lower rate, eight instances that in Arden of Bavisham, which has 18 examples. And the character of these rhymes is also very different in Shakespeare's play. None of them couple pronouns with the kind of polysyllabic words witnessed in kids' speeches. And the total for distinctive rhymes in Arden of Bavisham, found in kids' traditionally accepted plays, is 20, which we can compare to the total of 23 in the Spanish tragedy. Among many other forms of, of textual evidence I provide is the high rates in which Kidd employs colloquialisms such as I but, uh, when our Shakespeare averages just one instance per play, a vocabulary test that succeeds in correctly attributing 
all of Shakespeare and Kidd's accepted plays and gives Kidd, Arden of Faversham, King Lear, and portions of Edward III and Henry VI, Part One, as well as Kidd's idiosyncratic stage directions, his, his habits of echoing them in his dialogue, and the unique rates in which he starts stage directions with the phrase, then they, as in, then they fight, or then they draw lots. So that's the, the textual analysis bounded in a very tight nutshell, I guess, Cassidy. The detail of counting endings, spellings, and syllables to explore the authorship of plays is an entire field of study on its own. And Darren has done a significant amount of this kind of research in both his current book, as well as earlier works that he's talked about with us on that Shakespeare life. So if you're interested in details of exploring this field of textual sleuthing to discover who wrote different plays, definitely dive into Darren's recent book about Kid and explore the links to some of his other episodes here on the show where you can explore this kind of research. Now, some of Darren's earlier episodes are also available on our Patreon page in the back catalog, so you can go there to hear those, but links to all of this information will be in the show notes for today's episode. Like Shakespeare, Thomas Kidd was not educated at university. Now, Darren, Shakespeare took a lot of flack for not being university educated, and I wonder if Thomas Kidd received the same kind of criticism about not being university educated, specifically the most famous being Robert Greene saying that, you know, he was this upstart crow in the groat's worth of wit. Now, I wonder, did Thomas Kidd take the same kind of criticism for not being a university-educated playwright? I think so. I think so. Let, let's do some more textual sleuthing. I really like that phrase. That's a fine phrase, textual sleuthing. Thank you very uh, much. I think, actually, that, that Thomas Nash's famous attack on Kidd in his preface to Robert Greene's Menaphon, can be informed by a reading of Greene's attack against the author of Fair M, the Miller's Daughter of Manchester, which I also argue was written by Kidd and is a play in part about William the Conqueror falling in love with a picture on a shield and in part about the daughter of a miller pretending to be deaf and blind to avoid numerous suitors. Now, Green ridicules the author of Fair M in his pamphlet, Farewell to Folly. And the editor, Thomas Dickinson, noted that there are indications that Green would have been quite willing to ridicule Kidd for Nash in the same preface to Menaphon, in which he had ridiculed Marlowe, satirizes Kidd. Indeed, Green's image of a man who hath a familiar style and can indict a whole year and never be beholden to art, resembles Nash's attack against kids that run through every art and thrive by none, to leave the trade of novarent whereto they were born and busy themselves with the endeavours of art. And Green's line, he that cannot write true English without, without the help of clerks of parish churches will needs make himself the father of interludes, suggests to me that the author of Fair M was a professional copyist, but had turned his hand to playwriting. Furthermore, we know that Kidd's father had been a church warden. Both Nash and Green label the subject of their respective attacks as a plagiarist and dunce, a degreeless person who produces plays that are compared favourably with the work of better educated dramatists. To my eyes, Green's attack is practically identical 
to Nash's on kids and his education at Merchant Taylor School in London, as well as his background as a scrivener. The fact of the matter is, however, that their excellent grammar school educations would have been robust enough to equip Shakespearean kids with the knowledge and skill set required to write great poetry and plays. Darren's book is a deep dive into the influence of Kidd on Shakespeare. And while you want to read his book to explore all of it, Darren, I'd like to ask you to give us a few examples from your book about places that Shakespeare continued to engage with Thomas Kidd's work even after Shakespeare was established as a successful playwright on his own. Well, I discovered that, that Shakespeare shares statistically significant numbers of phrases with kids, and that Kidd appears to have influenced Shakespeare's language even more so than Marlowe did. So, for instance, Shakespeare remembered a particularly striking turn of words in Solomon and Poseidon, if I was so disgracious in thine eye, when he wrote Richard's confrontation with the Duchess of York in Richard III, if I be so disgracious in your eye. I don't think there can be any doubt that Shakespeare borrowed from the language of the old King Lear play long before it was available in print. So he lifted the line, the king hath dispossessed himself of all, for Salisbury's speech in King John, the king hath dispossessed himself of us. It's it's fascinating, actually, to, to see the ways in which some of Shakespeare's reminiscences of kids' language can be traced from play to play. So in King John, Shakespeare borrowed from Lear's desperate line, and think me but the shadow of myself, for Louis the Dauphin's amorous speech, the shadow of myself formed in her eye. And here Shakespeare employed the phrase in a very different context. But I think it it, it must have endured in his long-term memory, because he repeated the sentiment of Leah's line in the exchange between Leah and the fool in his tragic play. Leah asks, who is it that can tell me who I am? to which the fool responds, Lear's shadow. I've also discovered that Shakespeare seems to have been influenced by the witty servant, Piston, in Solomon and Poseidon when he wrote Othello. So in, in what amounts to a turning point for Iago's intrigue plot, Montano says to the drunken Cassio, I pray you, sir, hold your hand. And this line uniquely parallels Piston's exchange with the protagonist Erastus in kids' play, I pray you, sir, hold your hands, and as I am an honest man. Piston's speech seems to have spurred the repetition of the word honest in relation to Iago throughout Othello. Iago actually echoes Piston later in the same scene, as I am an honest man, he says. Now, Iago is a brilliant Machiavellian villain who can be traced in part to <laughs> Kid's villain in the Spanish tragedy, Lorenzo. But he's also a comedian, a savage, practical joker in the pack, as W.H. Auden termed him. And scholars have tended to write about Kid's influence on Shakespeare in largely tragic terms. But it seems to me that Kid's greatest impact on Shakespeare is the ways in which he toyed with genetic conventions through exploiting the dramatic potential of blending comedy and tragedy. Plays like the Spanish tragedy, Solomon and Poseidon, and Arden of Favisham are dripping 
with dark humor. You feel like you've been on an emotional roller coaster by the end of kids' dramas. You've laughed and you've cried. And I think you should feel like you've been putting the washing machine at the conclusion of a Shakespearean tragedy. I think that is a wonderful metaphor for the experience of, of tragedies, for sure. <laughs> now, I know, I know we would love to explore this topic further, and I want to ask, what are some of your favorite books or resources which you might recommend we use to learn more? Well, if you're interested in Thomas Kidd's works and, and his, his biography, I would first check out Arthur Freeman's Thomas Kidd, Facts and Problems. Also check out Lucas Hearn's Beyond the Spanish Tragedy, which is a, a, a truly great study. And I'd also recommend checking out my book, Reading Robert Greene, Recovering Shakespeare's Rival, because much of my work on Greene's contributions to Elizabethan drama intersects with my research on kids' place in the early modern canon. We will place links to all of these resources in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you go there to find direct places to connect with those. Now, Darren, as you know, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life. And while you are building up quite a library of books for yourself, we're going to ask it to you anyway again today. What's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I was still struck by that that term, textual sleuthing. And, you know, what, one of the <laughs> things I, I love about textual studies is, is the detective work involved. So if I found myself on an island and, and I sought to furnish my library with books I prized above my dukedom, I might have time to finally finish reading the complete collection of Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories. <laughs> Oh, that's an excellent choice. That's how I think it it would be a well-spent time on a deserted island, finally finishing all of them. And then, of course, you could take what you learned and take it back to your sleuthing of the textual plays. And I I can't imagine that wouldn't be helpful. It's elementary. It's elementary. (laughs) (laughs) So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Oh, lots of things. So in 2024 we hope to publish the collected works of Thomas Kidd, which is the first edition of Kidd's Collected Works in over 100 years. So I'm the associate editor for that edition, uh, and I'm editing Ardna Fabersham for it with Sir Brian Vickers as general editor. And that collection is going to be published by Boyd Allen Brewer. Uh, I'm also general editor for the collected plays of Robert Greene, which is due to be published by Edinburgh University Press in 2028. And something I'm working on currently, which I'm I'm really enjoying and really excited about, is, is a third book with the title Shakespeare's Borrowed Feathers, Exploring a Community of Playwrights, which charts the influence contemporary dramatists had on Shakespeare's outputs, beginning with John Lilly and concluding with John Fletcher and his collaborators. So in this book, I propose that we can expand our knowledge of other, uh, to quote Robert Greene's Groat's Worth of Wit, shake scenes of the period through proper acknowledgement of Shakespeare's debts to, and indeed his reliance on these other playwrights through more methodical approaches than have been deployed so far. So the book pushes for us to fully recognize early modern drama as a communal enterprise. 
That sounds like an exciting topic. And I know I'm looking forward to seeing your future work, having so much enjoyed your latest book. The future projects can only be highly anticipated. Thank you so much, Darren, for being here to talk with us about Thomas Kidd and his influence on the works of William Shakespeare. I've enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Farewell. Adieu. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show today, please let us know about it by dropping a rating and a review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. After completing today's interview, if you are all jazzed up to know more about Thomas Kidd's influence on Shakespeare, the best place to begin is with Darren's latest book called Shakespeare's Tutor. The book is packed with more history to be explored about Thomas Kidd, including details about the works he wrote and stories about the versions of both Hamlet and King Lear that happened before Shakespeare wrote his famous versions, and of course, the influence of Thomas Kidd specifically on Shakespeare. If that all sounds interesting to you, you can get a copy of Darren's book right now, available wherever you get your books and you can find a direct link to this book on Amazon with additional resources Darren recommends for you to use to explore this part of Shakespeare's history, all packed into the show notes for today's episode. Find all of these things, plus a few history extras I've put over there for you at CassidyCash.com slash episode 252. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP252. In Darren's previous episode with us, he looks at the life and death of Thomas Kidd, who died when Shakespeare was 30 years old. That episode is available in the archives of our show, along with Darren's very first appearance here on That Shakespeare Life, where he shares about the mystery surrounding Shakespeare's death. You can listen to both of these episodes right now in the patrons-only RSS feed available on Patreon. Sign up today at any level of support to access the entire back catalog, including these episodes. Find that feed and listen right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.